Hey, welcome to Rebel Business. This is episode seven. I'm one of your co-hosts, Mayhul Patel, and I got uh, Paul Samuel here as well. How's it going, everyone? So we missed last week because, you know, we have lives as well. Uh, <laughs> no, but a, a happy 80th birthday to Paul's dad, uh, which they were all celebrating last week. Uh, big milestone there. Yeah, it was nice. Uh family get together in Westchester County, New York. So I was out where you are, Mayhole. Unfortunately, didn't get to catch up with you. But yeah. Thanks, dude. Happy, Thanks. happy, happy birthday, Dad. We love you. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. My dad had his 80th uh not too long ago. It's a, it's a big milestone for sure. That's pretty cool. Um so we're gonna jump right into it. Uh as we tend to do to start the show. Um we kind of hit on the AI subject because we've been using AI to co-produce this show. Um, actually, something we talked about, I don't know which episode is like probably this third episode. We were talking about how we were hoping that Congress would start to put some eyes on AI and start to consider, you know, the broader ramifications and that this thing does have to be regulated. So interesting enough, um, they took our advice. Uh, maybe uh, somebody was watching the episode, but they brought in a uh, CEO, Sam Altman, I believe, was the CEO that they brought in. And um, it was an interesting discussion. I think what was good, it wasn't combative. I don't know if you saw clips of it, Paul, but it was really more of a kind of, um, I think Sam Altman, who um, is he, he's behind ChatGPT, he's right? ChatGPT, yeah. yeah. He kind of was saying, look, you know, this can be a great tool, but it does come with some risks and we have to be really well aware of it. Yeah, it was a sober discussion. I think he, he at first had a dinner with like 50 or 60 senators and then he did testify in front of Congress. Um, and it's unusual, right, for a market leading tech CEO to come on and say, especially early innings, and say, yeah. hey, regulate me. This is dangerous. Let's be careful. Yeah, no. Tread cautiously, right? But I think he's um, uh, he's pretty savvy, obviously. Been around the block a few times, very successful yeah. uh, in, the, in the tech world. And so what he's really pointing to is the nefarious things that can be done as these AI models evolve, yep. right? And so, uh, you know, one of the scary things was the Connecticut Senator, Richard Blumenthal, who I guess he spoke, I didn't see it, but he he spoke or presented uh, a speech that AI had crafted in his voice, yeah, with his yeah. Uh, his his point of view. They did, and I think it really made an impact uh, on everybody who was listening. I don't know if you've ever heard this guy speak. He's got one of the worst speaking voices of all time. Not that I have one, a wonderful one, but like his is horrific. I, I wonder how he is a senator, but the voiceover sounded just like him. The the text, however, had some, you know, quote unquote hallucinations where he's saying, you know, some pro-Russia things where he's a senator that is definitely not. And it was nice because it seemed like it was a bipartisan concern. But, you know, going back to what you said about Sam Altman and him being on Congress, um, one, I, I we've said it, I've said it, I think this is like 
the invention of electricity. I think it is, it is a big deal, but just from a business sense, it, it's such a good business move for him to be doing this now early stages and like try to create a partnership with sort of that, the, the policy side of this, the political side of it. Um, I, I just think it, it just makes so much sense to do it just from a purely business perspective. If you were, you know, somebody who was in the field of AI, you may as well get buy-in from the regulatory side and help craft it as well. So I thought it was a, it was a shrewd move for a lot of reasons, but I hope it was mostly driven that he wants a, you know, a responsible uh, product and not what we witnessed with, you know, the first versions of social media and probably up until recently, it's just been a freaking disaster. And like I said, I think it's a net negative, but pretty interesting to see that um, for sure. And another topic that we constantly bring up or I constantly bring up is, uh, you know, the office market time bomb, um, which I do think will eventually go off. Uh, Uber, I don't know if you saw this, Paul, up in Northern California, they're putting, I think, nearly 33% of their office space in the sublease market, which is nuts. And I'm curious, is that all in San Francisco or is that? Yeah, it's a cluster of four buildings. And I guess the largest one is where they're putting it on the sublease market. And these are new buildings. Like these are not, obviously they're, you know, it's their headquarters and it was built for Uber. So it's like, you know, Uber hasn't been around for 50 years. Uh, These are relatively new buildings. And this is sort of like, not the core San Francisco uh, market. So not a good sign. Uh, Not a good sign at all. And not a good sign for San Francisco as a city either. I mean, I know you haven't been there recently. I have, and I'm going up there next week uh, and we'll have another snapshot. But it's just, it feels empty. It feels uh, run down. It feels kind of like post-apocalyptic. I know that sounds really no, extreme. No, but, but I, I yeah. get it. I get it though. But like, you know, a lot of people have made a comparison to what happened in Detroit, you know, single industry yeah. that goes under. And in Detroit, obviously it was the auto industry. And I have been in Detroit probably, you know, close to 20 years ago, because I have no other reason to go to Detroit, but I was there and it very much sounds like what you just described. It felt like you were on a movie set, honestly. Yeah. It all these yeah. really nice looking buildings and architecture, but no people. Uh, it, it's weird. It's eerie. Yeah. I, and so my data point is mostly from like downtown and, and the Mission District. But I got off the bar train from the airport and it was called like 10 o'clock at night on a, on a Friday. And I'm walking around the 24th Street BART station and there are like, trash bins that are overflowing, others that are like kicked over and trash spewed out on the on the ground. And it's just like, That's it looked like anarchy. Yeah. Uh, for, terrible. For a I mean, we, we don't have that here in New York. I think right now it's, we have yeah. enough industry, but San Francisco is kind of ground zero for this. Uh, and it's just something that we're going to constantly talk about because I think that's going to be one of those sort of triggers not for the recession, but sort of the realization 
of a recession. And I guess that's the question that everyone's asking right now, right? Is are we actually in a recession right now? Is are we in sort of the eye of the storm right now? And eventually we're going to deal with some of these uh, typical things that happen in a recession. And so the next, obviously, the next big thing that's going to happen is we're going to see if uh, we have an interest rate hike uh, in June. And I think this probably feels like it's the one that if you're reading tea leaves, this is the one that I feel like is going to probably translate the most as far as what the Fed's real opinion on all of this is. Um, I personally, in my opinion, uh, I think that they should uh, increase the rate. I think we just need to kind of get over this thing already. Uh, and I think if we keep kind of pausing, um, or not that we have, but I don't. I think if we just don't do that, the fever isn't going to break. Um, I don't know if you have a different opinion on that. Uh, so a little bit. I, you know, I acknowledge the fact that there's still some room to go, or some 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 runway left. Right. I don't think that they should necessarily um, signal that they're going to cut rates anytime soon, but I think a pause may be warranted. And here's my argument for it. Like rates are already exceedingly high, right? They're not, we're not talking about like third world high. We're talking about relative to US historical uh, interest rates, right? At least recent history. So they're in a place now where they are already a discouragement for consumer spending, for call it extraneous business spending. So the, uh, you know, it's sort of like the, the, the Fed has set the speed limit um, and they, they continually like kind of zeroed in on it and people are working toward that, right? So there's, there's an understanding of what it will cost to finance a home, to finance yeah. an acquisition, right? And so I think the market has been looking for a signal that the Fed is done with uh, tightening, right, and wants to kind of see where things go on the inflation front. And I think we've reached that point. If we haven't yet, maybe there's one more rate hike that gets us there. But I, I think it would be a stronger signal to stop raising rates, kind of let them sit there and marinate, if you will, and see how this plays out over the next couple of months, right? There's still a couple yeah. of meetings left in the year. And then you still have another lever. Like, right. You know, my, my point, I think, is let's just get this shit over with. I mean, they already kind of screwed up. You know, the Fed already kind of screwed up. And I guess it's, it's worth talking about kind of how we got here, right? You know, I mean, ultimately, rates, everybody knows, they were low for a really long time. And so, you know, I think the fundamental question is like, okay, so you raise them, but why are they raising them so much? What else happened? Well, this thing called quantitative easing is what really put us in this situation, right? And if you don't, if you're not familiar with quantitative easing, I think the simple version of it is it's the central bank, the Fed, essentially buying bonds from banks. Right. Yeah. And that lowers 
kind of the long-term interest rate because there's more cash out cash. in the market, yeah. right? And so what that does is it allows you know companies, real estate to borrow at a lower cost and then invest. Yeah. And it allows consumers to borrow and spend, which is quite important, but it also can create an asset bubble, right? It can create values going up too much. And that's kind of where we're at. We have a lot of inflation and where I said they already screwed up is in 2020 or 2021, when we were coming out of COVID, they continued to go with this quantitative easing instead of right then and there doing sort of very sort of predictable rate increases that's when they should have, but they signaled to the market that, hey, we think that there really isn't systemic inflation. The inflation has been caused by COVID and things will be okay long-term. And they were wrong. I mean, they were just flat out wrong about that thesis. And that's why I think we're here. And I think we can't really take our foot off the gas. I think they got to plow through. It's going to be very unpopular. And yeah, it's going to be a little bit painful. But if we don't, I think this market volatility and up and down is going to continue. And this is not going to solve the ultimate issue is that everything feels like it's freaking too expensive still. Yeah. So so a couple of things that you said there, you know, quantitative easing, I think is is part of the problem. So historical rates. Uh, the Fed standing there as a buyer of all of these bonds, essentially injecting capital into the market through the banks. Um, then, you know, look, we can't ignore the pandemic. We can't ignore the massive no. stimulus, the, the PPP. And well, well, that, that. well, that's my point, too. All of that stimulus was there, right? And then you still continue doing quantitative easing. You still do these buybacks and, and you know, continue to artificially flavor the economy when so much money was printed and sent out. And I get it. Those businesses needed it and people needed it. But I just feel like, I mean, come on, man. This is just too much. How much freaking syrup are you going to put on the damn pancakes, dude? It's going to taste disgusting. It was hard to say that, though, at the time, right? Because people had this palpable fear that, like, we were going, like, remember, February, uh, March of 2020, there was, like, oh, I have 20% no unemployment. Yeah, right? I, I mean, have no problem with the stimulus. I just had a problem with yeah. continuing to buy back these bonds from the banks. Yeah. That just seemed like we had been doing it for a damn decade. It started, you know... Back in the last recession, and we just right. never stopped. You know, you had two administrations, Republican and Democrat, both doing the same thing. Because it's look in, in the political side of this for people who kind of are just hearing the words quantitative easing. If you're sitting there in the Oval Office and you have this thing that allows people to spend more and in companies to invest more at a cheap rate and you're leaving in four years, well, you're going to say, yeah, you're going to be a proponent of that for sure. Right. Because the damage is coming later and the later is now, you know, I mean, a perfect example of it, I think is, is we work right. Idiotic business plan. Most people that really are in real estate know we're like, how is this thing going to work? And the, the new, CEO was brought in a couple of years ago. He just resigned this week. The, the company's at a record low. And the whole reason we work exists 
was not directly quantitative easing. It was the indirect result of all this money that was out there and it was cheap. And so you had a bad idea that got funded and now it's worthless. That company is utterly worthless fighting to stay listed uh, on whatever, on the NASDAQ or whatever the hell it's on. Um, it, it's just, it's got a, it, it, it's a worthless company. It is a worthless company. So yeah, you bring up a good point, uh, moral hazard. So yeah. when you talk about the political side of this, right? Every president wants their term to be, you know, up into the right hockey stick growth for the economy. And unfortunately, yeah, the bill is paid later. Uh, and we're seeing that, right? It's, it's unfortunate, but uh, no matter which side of the aisle you sit on, right, there's, um, there's a, a measure of let me do what I can to kind of grease the skids and get the yeah. economy on the right footing. And, and usually that has yeah, bad. And of course, you're the class president, bad. free lunch for everybody. Yeah. You know? yeah. So we'll see. I, I'm still uh, cautiously optimistic that we're going to avoid like a deep rooted recession and this, you know, kind of apocalyptic yeah, uh, I, I think scenario, it, but I feel like it's uh it's it's probably either kind of a longer sustained sort of low growth for a little while. Um hopefully that's what it is and not some real you know drop off of a cliff type thing. But that's why I think you just keep raising these rates until hey, it really breaks. We lost a couple banks, we're still standing. I say keep going, but you know, there's a lot of people who disagree with that. Most CEOs do, but of course, their compensation is, you know, connected to interest rates in a lot of ways. So they're not the most unbiased group of people. And and I've met plenty of stupid CEOs. I mean, they're not all geniuses. Um, half of them got their positions because they were politically savvy in the corporation they worked in. You know, that's that's also a fact. Uh, but, you know, as we as we talk about this, we know that Congress is sort of, you know, they're dealing with this debt ceiling. Right. And yeah. we hear about it constantly. And we're all annoyed that we have elected officials who can't freaking figure this out. Um, but I think there's another debt ceiling that is only recently being talked about in the last few weeks, or at least I've only started to see the headlines in the last few weeks. And that's the consumer debt ceiling. And um, something came out, I think it was this week, that credit card debt year over year um, from, you know, the first quarter of last year to the first quarter of this year uh, is up 20%, which puts it at nearly $1 trillion of credit card debt is out there. I mean, that's, that's insane. That's an insane number. It is. Yeah. Look, I mean... What do you do when you don't have the cash lying around? You know, charge it, right? Uh, it's like from the Flintstones. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> Wilma got a credit card and like it went, you know, buck wild crazy charging everything. And then, you know, obviously Fred had a had a fit afterwards. But the 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 problem is, right, like wages were increasing. They're also now starting to taper off. People are feeling a little less secure, but 
the price of things are still high, like all the discretionary items, housing. It's still very expensive. It's It's still very expensive. And so, you know, I was going through, once I saw that one trillion, I I really like was taken back by it. I was like, wow, a trillion dollars in credit card debt. Um, What was also interesting was I, I think it said only one out of three people pay off their credit card at the end of every month, but was even more sort of dark was um, it actually broke down the sort of percentage of people who have more credit card debt than savings in you know in a bank or emergency fund, and they did it by um, generation. And so, thirty-eight percent of Gen Z has more debt than savings. Forty-five percent of millennials and Gen X have more debt than savings and baby boomers, 25% of them have more debt than savings. And that's, that's alarming um, because at this point, whatever you have on your credit card, the average interest rate, I looked it up is 20%, 20%. That's just, you know, I mean, that is so much money to pay to finance what you're buying, but this is what inf- this is kind of my point from when we started. This is, I think, the severity of the inflation. Everyone keeps looking at the cost of bacon and eggs and things like that. And I get that. But this is a real cost. This is like this could really damage a household or an individual for a long time, right? Where it's like that kind of debt load uh is scary. And that's why I'm like, yeah. I think you gotta raise rates. Because if that 20% interest goes up to 23%, at some point, people have to stop spending on things that are like not absolutely necessary. Okay, I'll, I'll just stop you right there. That I completely disagree with. There is nothing in this world that will stop the American consumer <laughs> from spending money that they don't have right it's ingrained in our culture at this point right like yeah i guess you're right i'm not gonna i'm not gonna debate that i'm not gonna debate it but at some point it gets you're buying the thing twice you're buying the damn thing twice but i i hear you because there's people uh, i mean i've built self-storage facilities there's people who store stuff and the cost of the rent ends up being more than the stuff that they're storing so I mean, I I'm not going to debate you like on that. it. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> hoping that, you know, we sort of break that addiction. I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, there is one sign of hope, though. There is one sign of hope. Uh, I will read this to you. The personal savings rate hit $1 trillion in March. Um, and so the personal savings rate uh, as a percent of disposable personal income rose to 5% in March. And um, so that was one positive I saw out there. Uh, you know, there are some people that are saving more money um, and maybe that's, maybe they're seeing what's happening outside and, and they're telling themselves, all right, we have a household budget and we've got to find ways to save. I don't know. But yeah. I'm not going to debate you on the fact that we are addicted to retail. I mean, that that is a true American addiction. Yeah, this look, I, I talked my daughter's eight years old and I've already taught her uh, the term uh, debt spiral. And 
Yeah, and she, understands she doesn't it, think it's a ride at the playground. Yeah. She doesn't think it's fun at all, right? So she understands the concept that if you have to pay all of this interest and you're making very small payments, you're making minimum payments on these huge ballooning balances, you will never get out from under that weight, no. right? Like it, it's your to your point, you'll pay two, three times over the cost of of what you uh, what you bought. Yeah, and some of those and, things are depreciating purchases, right? Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second, right? Like we're gonna talk about um, cars. And so I just think we're sort of at that tipping point where we might start to see things that we hadn't, you know. Um I, I saw that uh, for high-end resorts, um, and I don't really know what they were using as the definition, the rates actually dipped um, 75 basis points in March. Wasn't a big dip. That's less than 1%, obviously. But that was the first decline, I believe, since February 2021. So while it's a very tiny, I, I recognize it's tiny, and it could go either way right now. Um, is that the beginning of a trend where those prices come down? Seems weird because we're going into the high season of travel and vacation, um, you know, the summer, which is just kind of the global season of taking time off. But, you know, it is the first time in, you know, two plus years, 25 months that we've seen any real dip in that. So that's something to keep an eye on um, as well. Yeah, it's interesting. You raise a point that it's a signal in effect. And I think you're right, you know, directionally, the fact that um, that it's gone down suggests that there's some softness at the, the super high-end luxury level. Me personally, I live in you know, more realistic uh, travel tourism world. And so I'm planning a trip to Europe. And anecdotally, there doesn't appear to be much uh, downswing in hotel airfare activity prices. In fact, it, it seems like it's still exceedingly expensive. Uh, my gut tells me this is still just a lingering effect from the pandemic. Could, you know, be. Could be. I mean, look. Um, World Health Organization, you know, the headline came out, they declared it's, you know, COVID is not a global health concern anymore. So not that anybody was really waiting for them to say that. But uh, I think that, look, there's probably um, some still some pent up demand. It's now there's there's literally no sort of I got to look at what the protocol is to travel to another country uh, based on COVID. That's sort of over. Uh, I think pretty much everywhere. Um, it's just the typical stuff. You check the weather uh, and and you go. So that it, I think it's just something to kind of take a look at. Um, and I think there are other signs of change, right? Um, yeah, I saw another thing that I think Edmonds put out a report that, um, you know, auto loans are starting to see negative equity. And if anybody has never heard that term for auto loans. I haven't either. That's the first time I've ever heard of negative equity with a car loan. But basically what happened was, you know, as everybody knows, there was no semiconductors and there was no new cars being made. So the used car market went way up. That used car market is going down now. And people who got loans to finance those used cars 
are starting to see that the car they bought 24 months ago, 30 months ago, is simply not worth the loan they have on it. And that's the negative equity. And that's starting to happen. Yeah. I've, I just got off the phone with a friend of mine who, uh, he was the opposite. He was very smart during the pandemic and he got himself a Tesla, uh, sold it eight months later and made a bunch of money, then got himself a little pickup truck and did the same thing again, where he basically got paid to drive a truck for you know a year and then made a little bit of money on top of it. But most people, you know, this is where I have a, a, a real issue with consumer behavior, right? Most people have a basic understanding of how cars work, which is you buy it new, right? Or you lease it new and it depreciates over time. It doesn't get more valuable. We're no. not talking about classic cars. This had to right? have been the it, first time in history that used yeah. cars went up in value. I don't know. Yeah. I, look, I don't know if that's a actual true fact, but in my lifetime, I don't. I can't recall used cars going up in value. Oh, I'll bet you it, it has to be, right? It just goes against the fundamentals yeah. of, you know, an, an aging asset isn't worth more, right? Unless you're talking about watches or wine, right? So it, it to me, you knew you were going to be left holding the bag, right? If you, if you were the type of person who was willing to spend, and there were, I think there was a stat, 15% of Americans have a, an auto payment on one car of over $1,000, $1,000 a month, right? But so people were paying a lot. exorbitantly high prices, right? On these with very little down, right? They were basically kicking the can down the road. And so at some point you knew that the used market, used car market was going to right size and you know prices were going to fall, which, which they have. And now you're sitting in a, in a world where you've got a $20,000 note Payable on a car that's only worth yeah. fourteen thousand dollars, and what happens, right? So the, the the auto loan market is really interesting because it fits somewhere between you know discretionary, non-discretionary spending, and like your home, where you you don't want to stop paying on your on your home payment, mortgage payment. So you you might change like what you buy at the store, buy less red meat, buy the generic version of milk. Uh, eggs, things like that. But when it comes to the next bill, right, that you might think about delaying or defaulting on, it's your car payment, right? Yeah. And so most of yeah. the noise that you're seeing here in terms of upticks in defaults and delinquency are auto loans. And so it's going to be. Oh, I it's think, coming, man. Tough, I mean, that, that, yeah. yeah, that negative equity I was talking to you about year over year, it's on average $5,400 per car, which is a, almost a 30% increase in negative equity value. And this is the start of it. So there are signs to me that, hey, we might be in a recession. And if we're going to tip this thing over, I again, let's keep saying it. Yeah, I think you keep rates up. One last point on this is Walmart, right? Everybody knows Walmart, massive, you know, but they, they're the biggest kind of consumer yeah. outlet of product, whatever, retailer. Uh, their revenues were up 8%. Um Contrast that to Target and Home Depot. They were both down. They didn't meet their earnings expectations. But Walmart, what was interesting about it was 
their shoppers got younger and wealthier, which basically means people who have more money are deciding, you know, I'm not going to shop at Target. I'm going to shop at Walmart, which is kind of ridiculous because it's the same damn crap. All right. Let's just, but it's cheaper. It is cheaper. cheaper. It is cheaper. Just Target. It's the same stuff, just different packaging. When people are like, no, Target's so much better. I'm like, well, you're obviously insane. I was like, have you been in these stores? It's the same damn aisles. All right. They have the same product um, and they all break within six months. So it's all the same. But point being is you're right. The sticker price in Target is more. Obviously, Home Depot represents home improvement projects. There's a reduction there, but not at Walmart. So you have younger people who are probably just like, I've got to find a way to like curb in my spending. And people who are generally not Walmart shoppers going there and they see an 8% increase in revenue. Hopefully, the optimistic side of that is hopefully people are recognizing that, you know what, times are changing and I've got a, I got a budget. Um, but I found that to be an interesting kind of data point um, and why I do think it, there's a good chance that when we look back at this, the recession, while it might have not been in second quarter, I could see it happening in the third or fourth quarter of this year because the signs are there. And most of these things are like lagging indicators. You know, unemployment is not a good indicator of if there's a recession, it lags. So there's these things that we're pointing out, they're happening now right? They're happening now. And it suggests to me that while the storm hasn't made landfall, it's on the path to, it definitely is on the path to. Um, But, you know, we'll see what happens with this. Obviously this is, you know, affects everybody personally. It does, but in your business side, your job, everything. Um, And I'm sure we're going to talk about it in future episodes. Um, Another thing that did happen this week um, that has nothing to do with the recession that I did think was interesting uh, was Elizabeth Holmes, uh, the former founder and CEO of Thermos, right? Who was convicted of, I don't know how many counts of fraud. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Countless. <laughs> Countless. I mean, she ripped off investors by yeah. with hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, she was trying to delay going to prison. Um, she had a couple kids since uh, her conviction. Um, I'm sure that wasn't timed, but um, she uh, is now going to have to report May 30th, and she's serving an 11-year sentence um for her uh financial crimes and so my first question to you do you think that's too stiff a penalty because that's what her lawyers were arguing yeah uh it's a good question right so what's the harm done right how deep how deeply impacted uh were people i i think it's a fitting punishment um people don't you know did anybody die as a result no did it cause financial distress for a lot of people? It did, right? Like somebody lost their job over it or somebody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for sure. Had, you know, personal turmoil over the stress induced by it. So I I think that it's an appropriate uh, amount of time for her to go to jail. There's also like, I think $440 million 
uh, restitution that she has to make, uh, which I don't, yeah. I don't know if she's got spitting around. Uh, I think but... some of that was probably paid back. Uh, I think I don't, I don't know the details of it, but I, I agree. Look, 11 years, she ripped off predominantly institutional investors, uh, who probably should have known a little bit better, but I agree. There's other people like, how about if you were you know, an admin at this place and you thought you landed a, a really good job and you turned down another job offer that had healthcare benefits, this, that, and you took this because, oh, there's some upside. It's a, it's an up and coming company. But the one thing, 11 years, I think I'm not dissatisfied with it, but the problem I have, I think it actually should be more. And, and the reason is, man, this was like a company that was doing testing on blood right and she was making stuff up and uh, how about if like the lie never was discovered i was like this is healthcare, man i mean i think give her 15 20 i don't know i mean i think she should get a little bit more because if she succeeded in the fraud i mean that now is actually to your point you you know you started by saying it didn't affect anybody's health or you know in, in as far as somebody dying, but then the product itself is a healthcare product. So um, right. I don't know. I think in that regard, I think I would have tried to see if she could get more years on there, but um, yeah. you know what I, I, I was wondering if she was going to go to a, uh, you know, white collar Martha Stewart type. Definitely. Situation. Yeah. She's but I, definitely did learn, I did learn something yeah. here is if you are, sentenced to over 10 years and she was at 11 you don't get to go to minimum security oh right? i didn't know that yeah okay. you have to go to medium security which okay. kind of sucks uh from what i read uh because i was reading the difference between you know minimum security medium maximum and uh, I'm just curious, do you think you could handle minimum security? I'm not talking, I already know neither of us can handle medium or above, yeah. but I'm saying minimum security. Do you think you could actually handle going through that? So I don't, I don't have a strong enough understanding, but do you get like your own cell? Is it, is it like staying in a hospital room or is it still a prison No, I cell? think it's it's still I mean I think it's um it's more of a room. Uh okay. it's probably you pro in in some cases you have a roommate still. It okay. almost be if you were in prison in a dorm uh or a hostel. Okay. Do you get like choices at lunch or is it no, you know, dog, no dog slop? No choices on food. None. And the food probably like I have to imagine that's not something that they like food is invest terrible. more in, right? It's just food is terrible. As right. a matter of fact, I read something about the uh, Kozlowski, the Tyco CEO from yeah. You know, people who are young aren't going to know this guy, but you should look him up. He was it's quite a story. He went and he he said it was terrible, and he just missed the simple things of life. And um, you know, I, I, I it doesn't sound great but it definitely sounds way better than medium security which seems horrible i, I don't think i could handle it to be honest with you i, I don't think I, I don't think i could because there's just simple things that really do matter to me i have so many rituals that i go through in a day that are so basic 
Um, but I'm so time oriented and I'm still like a freaking little kid. I have to keep myself on a certain schedule to maintain my happiness. Like I don't need extravagant dinners. I don't need to go on vacations, things like that, but I need my day to be orderly. Um, and I need it to be on most terms or I think I would freak out. I think it would be really hard for me. Um, oh, man. It would be tough, I, I think- man. It would be tough. I think it'd be tough for for either of us, you know, particularly like no technology, no phone. Yeah, you're you're just cut off, and yeah. the amount of just even like looking up headlines, things like that, just knowing what's going on in the world, you're cut off. Uh, yeah, you're not talking to anybody. Um, I mean, you don't have your phone, obviously. So I don't know. I think it'd be a tough circumstance if I was sent to to minimum security would you hang out with me afterwards like would you would you you let me come Uh, would you let me come over for dinner with your wife and daughter and knowing full well i'm in pictures of your wedding by the way so like you have to put all this would you would i be allowed over for dinner so i think it depends on the degree to which you yeah, of your crime. So, like, okay. Elizabeth Holmes, Bernie Madoff, and no, you can't, right? Like, those are, those are things that, like, yeah, I don't think you can come back from, frankly. Like, I people might want to say that they, yeah, they want to give you a second chance. But it's so hard to give somebody a second chance when they were so bad, uh, you yeah, know, with, with their, I mean, and Bernie Madoff was, like, four he years was, of was, doing he, this, right? He, he His really closest was, friend. Yeah. He really was a financial terrorist. You know, yeah, but- um, he really was. I mean, like when you hear these things about like Madoff and, um, you know, cults and all of these things, you know, do, do you think you could ever get duped by somebody? Uh, yes. And, and the reason isn't because I think myself that stupid. I think some of these folks are just so sophisticated, right? Like Bernie Madoff is running in some, you know, really deep circles. Look at like Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, the guy was horrible, right? And like, oh, I don't evil, quite understand. Evil. evil. But somehow, even after he had been uh, charged and I think he, you know, served a little bit of time or he paid uh, uh, a penalty. You're right. You're right. People, very important, powerful people uh, trusted him again. So like, they're way smarter than me. If they can be duped, I'm sure I can. Uh, you mentioned cults. No, because I think, uh, you know, I, I'm just too skeptical about anything that's telling me, like, I need to do this or pay, yeah. you know, tribute to some earthly being who is, you know, godlike. I, I'm just not buying that. Right. But uh, on the financial side, there are way too many smart, nefarious people out there. Uh, out to get your money. Um, I, I, I'll fall into the victim category pretty easily. What about you? No, <laughs> that was that's pretty pretty clear. No, and, and it is, and then it's it's not because I'm smart either. It's not because <laughs> I feel like I'm smarter than those. I just I I just inherently don't trust people. <laughs> so I it would be so it's it's i think partially because i work for myself now and anybody who presents something i just think it's bullshit i always think it's bullshit and i kind of 
maybe to my detriment, start with you're guilty, dude. You're guilty of a stupid idea and prove to me that you're innocent with this. Um, it could be this living here in New York. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't think I would, but I, I can. Well, let's put it this way. I think I would go down the line of I could probably be charmed for a distance of it. But then when it really came down to it, I wonder if um, my cynicism would take over. Not so much my IQ. It would just be the hardcore cynicism. Because um, I always, you know, people that are too charming, I sort of freak out about as well. Um, so I don't know. I don't think I would. I mean, the ultimate guy was way back, what, in the 1900s? This guy, George Parker, kept trying to sell right. the Brooklyn Bridge to people. And people bid on it right they actually thought he he owned it um that wouldn't i don't think that would have worked on me even back then i just would be like this george parker guy is a piece of shit he's too charming um but i i don't think i would I, and, and the cult stuff i don't think i would but you know we'll uh, have to send uh elizabeth holmes uh postcards uh when, when she goes in you can send some postcards from your european trip uh but we'll uh, one, obviously what was that i'll make i'll make one plug for for netflix here have you seen the anna delvey anna oh Sorokin? yeah yeah, yeah. That, i've met some I mean, of the people in that movie in oh know, really day-to-day -day real life and i wow. have to say some of the people in there that got duped are morons they're <laughs> they're fucking idiots um they are idiots. Uh, there's no question about it. Uh, I, okay. I, I stand by that statement. I think some of it is that is is that the the Madoffs and Epstein's of the world create this circle of social lights or whatever you want to call it, and people get intoxicated by that. Um, particularly in places like New York and L.A. and Miami, where being seen matters, and I, that's where my cynicism really kicks in and you know sometimes that's to my detriment um but it wasn't surprising that she got that far but at the same token there's just no way if i if i met her i would have pressed her and there's just no way i would have got kicked out of the parties that she was at be like this guy's being a total dick why is he asking anna all these questions about her pro forma and her rate of return on the investment but I'll hit people with that because I, I am a dick when it comes to that. I am. Uh, no question about it. Uh, I am. I own that. But anyway, we were we are definitely going to keep an eye on what's going on in the world right now. Um, this is uh, probably what our third recession, Paul, as uh, human beings on the earth. Yes. So we'll uh, keep giving you guys our color on it. And as we love to do to end our uh, show, we're going to do a little segment, uh, Trailer Trash, where we uh, watched a trailer and uh, then we try to get so, it. So, so can we, is there a trailer treasure side to this too? Or we're just trash? I think it's trailer trash, dude. I think it's <laughs> trash. I think most of these trailers are so misleading. They belong in the trash, a lot of them. But this uh, this week, uh, we're going to look at uh, Kandahar. Um, last uh, last episode, it was Love Again. We can recap that real quick. Love Again 
It looked like a horrible rom-com. We predicted what we thought would be opening weekend revenue. I said 925,000. Paul said 34 million. (laughs) And the number came in at 2.3 million. Um, So I'm going to say I was closer to right. Yeah. Okay. We'll give you that one. I don't know if we've talked about any of the other ones, but dubs against Sacramento. I got that one. You did I'll get that, that one. You did get that um, one. You did get that one. Um, but this week it's uh, Kandahar and it is a, uh, I'll give you the description of the movie. Tom Harris, an undercover CIA operative working in the Middle East, is in danger when his classified mission is exposed. Together with his translator, they must find a way out of hostile territory to an extraction point in Kandahar, Kandahar, Afghanistan. Um, So I I saw the preview. It it looked interesting. I liked it. Yeah, this is a movie right in my wheelhouse. I I don't know if I would like go out of my way to see it in the theater, but I would absolutely watch this movie. Um, Same. I I would watch it at home. I won't go to the theater, but I would watch it at home. Um, but it seems a little familiar, right? The, the sort of theme and whatnot, uh, the CIA operative, and I'm sure there's going to be an emotional scene where he talks about being estranged from his family and uh, the translator is all I want to do is do something for my family. Um, that, that scene is definitely going to be in there. If I had to guess how much it's going to make. I think this genre, there are dedicated people that like going to it, that kind of Tom Clancy genre. Yes. Um, I think it's going to make $5 million opening weekend. Keep in mind, it's got to compete against The Little Mermaid. Which it will lose. Uh, oh, it, uh, so... there's no question. Little Mermaid's going to crush it. But yeah. I still think it'll make $5 bucks. I think it's not going to do even that well, to be honest with you, right. to your point. Like, this, seeing this movie, right? Definition of, uh, I've seen this movie before. It's a commodity. Uh, it's a it commodity. really is. Rinse and repeat. Uh, I guess Gerard Butler is, the, is yep. the headliner in this one. So, yeah, he's got some cachet. But I, I'm going to go nay on this one. Uh, I'll go two million bucks. All right. Not, not much better than the rom-com. What was that? Uh... I hope for Gerard <laughs> Butler's sake, he beats Love Again. Uh, Love Again. Is yes. That preview, at least I was entertained by this preview. Love Again, I was, that preview was tough to watch. It was tough to get through that two minutes and 53 seconds. But um, hopefully uh, this episode wasn't tough for our audience to get through. Um, thanks for joining us and, uh, you can, uh, catch us on Spotify and all the other podcast platforms and on YouTube. Um, and we'll see you next week. See you everyone.